1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to start reading here in just a couple of minutes. But I think all of us realize something about our topic today, our topic a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 4 and now at the beginning of chapter 5. But talking about the end of the world can cause a lot of confusion and a lot of anxiety. Place aside all of the fiction uh, that our culture has right now that has everything to do with how the world is, is going to end, when we actually begin to talk about the coming of Jesus Christ and what that's going to look like, it's very easy for that to cause confusion and difficulty and fear and anxiety. Friends, Scripture teaches that there really is coming a day when history as we know it is just going to come to an end. Jesus Christ will return. He will finish all justice. He will bring all of His children to be with Him for eternity, and His perfect and eternal reign will begin. This day really is coming. Now, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to figure out. But it's important enough to the Christian faith that Paul teaches it when he establishes brand new churches. As we've said before, Paul was in Thessalonica for maybe just a few weeks. And even in that short period of time, it was important for him to talk to the Thessalonians about all of this matter, what we call the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ. And as it happens with us sometimes, It happened with the Thessalonians. That teaching caused some confusion, some anxiety, especially as time passed and things began to change. The Thessalonians were worried about the day of the Lord for several reasons. At the end of chapter 4, we realize this, that they were worried about it because several of their family members and their friends had passed away before the day of the Lord had come. And, well, what happens to them? And Paul's teaching at the end of chapter 4 is encouragement to them. Don't worry, if we die in Christ, we are with Him immediately, and Christ will bring them to be with us, and we will all be together for all of eternity. So there's encouragement there with that confusion. And as we begin chapter 5, Paul continues to work on that difficulty and confusion and provide clarity and to provide encouragement for Christians. So these are some of the thoughts that are going to help guide us through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. And the first question is this, what about when all of this is going to happen? You know, what I listed before earlier, I mean, that's pretty dramatic stuff. That's literally as dramatic as it gets. And so we have this question that rolls around in our hearts and our minds, well, when is it going to happen? It was a question for the early Christians, for the Thessalonians, and it's often a question for us as well. So much so that there still are a lot of preachers and teachers and individuals who spend a lot of time trying to set the date for the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, what did Paul teach about that, about date setting for when it will happen? What difference does it make if we do or do not set a date for the return of Jesus Christ? turns out it makes an incredible difference, actually. Another question that Paul wrestles with in this passage of Scripture is is the question this, like this, well, what about me? Am I going to be able to stand in that day when I come face to face with my Creator, with the one who spun the galaxies into existence, the holy and righteous God Himself? What about me? Will I be able to stand before the judge of all things? 
And then another question that's going to guide us this morning is, does the day of the Lord, something that is still coming in our future, does it make a difference in my life today? And what kind of difference does it make? So let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While the people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now concerning the times and the seasons. This is a phrase that shows up in Paul and Jesus Christ uses it. It's a phrase that refers to, again, this whole matter of the day of the Lord. When all of these things are going to change and God's eternal kingdom comes into existence. So Paul is still talking about the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ. And he tells the Thessalonians, now, you know a lot of things. And so I don't have to go into this teaching in depth with you. But I need to remind you of a couple of very important things about the day of the Lord. And the first is this. He says, I don't have to tell you again, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. How many of you remember that movie, Thief in the Night? Scared you to death, didn't it, when you were a kid? The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. And the point is this, guys. We don't know exactly when Christ will return. Throughout the church, throughout Scripture, and so we maintain this posture now when we teach about the day of the Lord, we are taught that Christ's return is imminent. And we use this word imminent to mean it is inevitable. It's coming, and we don't know exactly when, but it's coming soon. Jesus Christ really will come back to establish justice and to bring his people to be with himself and to set up his eternal kingdom. So the coming of Jesus Christ is imminent, but we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. In fact, we are taught that we cannot know the moment when Christ will return. Christ himself teaches this to the disciples, and then to the disciples pass this teaching in the epistles on to you and me. Jesus Christ at one point told his disciples that only the heavenly Father actually knows the moment when this is going to happen. He says this in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. He says, but concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, which is an incredible thing. Jesus is referring to himself. The angels in heaven don't know. The Son doesn't know, but only the Father. So this is Mark 13, verse 32. Jesus in verse 33 then gives us the teaching, the result of this reality that we don't know when Christ is going to return. And then he says, so be on guard and keep watch. So now you're supposed to live a certain kind of way because we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming. Be on guard and keep watch. Christ told his disciples at another point to not obsess about or concern themselves overly with the moment at which the kingdom of God is actually going to come. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, 
This is after the crucifixion and the resurrection and just before Jesus' ascension into heaven and the fall of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church. is right at the very beginning of the book of Acts. The disciples approach Jesus and they say this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus told the disciples, it is not for you to know. The times or the seasons that the Father has fixed with his own authority. It's not for you to know that. It's not for you to concern yourselves with an actual date of the Lord's return. The very next thing that Jesus says, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has fallen on you so that you will be my witnesses everywhere you go. So here's what I want you to concern yourselves with. I'm coming back, and I will bring my children to myself. But until then, you're to witness to me everywhere you go. See, it makes a difference. It makes a profound difference. So guys, there really is a tension for the Christian in this kind of teaching. And sometimes I know it's a little bit difficult to figure out, but nonetheless, this is what is left in our hands. The Christian is left with two truths. And the first is Christ's return is sure. He's coming back again. As far as I'm concerned, he could come back before this sermon is done, right? Jesus Christ is coming back because my sermon is about four hours long. You guys are going to want that to happen too. Christ is coming back, and we don't know when, so we have to live faithfully and courageously until he returns. Those are the things that are left in our hands. These truths, these doctrines, and it changes the way we live. It gives us direction. It commissions us in this world. But we have oftentimes inside of the church and outside of this church, the, the church an obsession with setting the date for the end of the world or setting the date for the return of Jesus Christ. And guys, when we attempt to set a date for the return of Jesus Christ, we end up doing some pretty dysfunctional things. And we have to be very careful with this. In fact, it is one of the marks of a cult to be so obsessed with the end of the world that a date is set and people are struck into fear and manipulation and anxiety. It's one of the marks of a cult. They're obsessed with it and they do some date setting. In fact, we know this, right? If, if you know enough about the, the history of cults, even in the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, when a cult leader sets the date for the end of the world, that means they can control all of their followers and manipulate them to their own ends. And in extreme cases, that date setting ends up in mass suicide, right? It can go off the rails in really brutal kinds of ways. That's... You know, you know those, are, those are cults and those are obsessions. Those are markers of those kinds of false religions. But then oftentimes also inside of the church, there are those who obsess with the end of the world and setting dates and stoking fear and anxiety and division. And we have to be careful with that. Notice two things that Paul says as he talks about the day of the Lord to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says this, Therefore, 
encourage one another with these words. As he finishes this teaching in chapter 5, verse 11, notice what Paul says. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So if any one of us gets caught up in teaching about the end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ that creates more fear than encouragement, I would suggest that you find someone else to listen to about the day of the Lord. If we get caught up inside of teaching that creates more anxiety than it does fruit and witness for Jesus Christ, maybe we should find someone else to listen to. Paul was not at all trying to manipulate the Thessalonians. He wanted their doctrine to be clear and their hearts to be encouraged. The coming of the day of the Lord is light and it is life for the children of God. So be on guard and keep watch. Be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Be my witnesses everywhere you go. This is the result of teaching about the day of the Lord in Scripture. So we learn this, I think, pretty clearly as we follow this theme through the words of Christ and the words of Paul and Peter. We live best. Christians are actually able to bear fruit when we understand that Christ is coming at a time that we do not know. Now, there are indications in Scripture about what things are going to be like before the day of the Lord comes. There's some of that here in chapter 5. There's some of this later on in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus, is, Jesus Christ himself even says, this, this, and this will happen, and then the day of the Lord will come. But notice what Jesus does not do. This, this, and this will happen, and then six months later to the day, 12 noon, Mountain Standard Time, I'm coming. Right? Still no date setting. Okay, we have a sense of how things are going to go, but we still don't know the date. So Paul says, and he, he mixes metaphors. Paul loves mixing metaphors. English teachers get grumpy with Paul, right? He mixes two metaphors. He says the coming of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night, and he says it's going to be like a woman in labor giving birth, okay? Now, so here's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. The coming of Jesus Christ is inevitable, and it is inescapable, the moment those labor pains begin, that child is going to come. A woman at that moment can't suddenly decide, ah, never mind. <laughs> it's inevitable and it's inescapable. The day of the Lord will come and it will affect everybody and everything in all creation. This is some pretty powerful stuff that the Apostle Paul is leading us through as we understand the day of the Lord. Some, else, some of the other things that he tells us here in verse 3 of chapter 5, while people are saying there is peace and security, at that moment, sudden destruction will come upon them, like the labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Scripture actually teaches this a handful of times. There is going to be a sense amongst a significant part of the human race that there is peace before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it's a sense of false peace, right? Everything is fine. We've got everything managed. Everything is in place, all of our ducks in a row. And then suddenly the kingdom of God will come. 
Well, Scripture speaks of this, and there are other prophets and apostles that speak of this kind of sense and how it misleads the human heart. We can go all the way back to the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says this kind of thing at least twice inside of his book. And Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 11, listen to this verse. I love this. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Here's the context for that. Jeremiah has come as the prophet of God, and he's telling the people of God, you're sinning and you have to repent, and if you repent and obey God, judgment will not come upon you. The Babylonians will not overcome you. So repent, return to God, and obey him. The false prophets come along and say, you know what, Jeremiah is wrong. You don't have anything to repent for, and by the way, the Babylonians are never coming. So in that context, we hear Jeremiah say, They, the false prophets, have healed the wound of my people lightly by saying there's peace when in fact there is no peace. The wound of my people is the deep root of sin that sits in our hearts. It's a sucking chest wound, and the false prophets give you band-aids, and they say you are fine. Nothing's going to happen. They say peace when there is no peace. So why does that happen when we go centuries into the past with Jeremiah? Why does the Apostle Paul say that when it still comes, when it's still coming, that is actually going to happen again? This is consistent inside of the human heart. What deludes human beings into a false sense of peace? I think there are actually several answers to this question, good answers to this question. But a couple of them that I think are important for us inside of this context of 1 Thessalonians 5. And the first is this. When human beings convince themselves they have no need to repent before God, then they have a false sense of peace. It's exactly Jeremiah's complaint. As soon as a human being believes that I am not a sinner, there's really not all that much wrong with me, I can be fine with God or I don't need God without any kind of sense of repentance, that's a false peace. If God says I need to repent of my sins or I will reap judgment and I think I have no sin, then I'm perfectly happy to believe that there's peace when there is no peace. It's a universal human condition inside of our sin. Another thing that I think arises out of the Jeremiah story and even can be a part of what Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians, when human beings believe that they can perfect human society without God if they're just given enough power, right? We call it sometimes utopianism. If human beings think, well, if the right group of people with the right set of ideas have enough money and enough power, we can fix everything. The false prophets of utopianism tell us that their schemes will solve all of their problems if we just give them more and more and more power. They can make peace when, in fact, there is no peace. This kind of utopianism is a religion. It substitutes government and human power for God. We don't need God's sense of peace. We don't need to be right with God. We just need more power from you given to us, and everything is going to be fine. 
This kind of utopianism, friends, has slaughtered millions of human beings throughout history in the name of peace, and yet it remains a perpetual attraction to the human heart because in our sin, we still don't want to release ourselves to God. We still don't want to recognize that I am a sinner before God, and if I repent before Him, I recognize that He is King, and He is the one who grants peace and wisdom and strength and salvation and grace, not any of these other schemes. The human heart just has this inclination against repentance. So there's peace, peace, we cry out, when there is no peace. And Paul tells these Thessalonians in verse 4, he says, okay, that's what that is going to look like. It's going to be a thief in the night. It's going to be like giving birth to a child in labor. Human beings are going to believe that everything is fine before it happens. And in verse 4, he says this, but you, you're not in this kind of darkness, brothers and sisters. This day should come upon you like a thief. You've been taught differently, Christian. The follower of Jesus Christ is in the know, so to speak, instead of ignorant of the day of the Lord. This kind of darkness that Paul deals with, and he'll expand this thought as this passage continues. This darkness is not just ignorance about the day of the Lord and what all of that means and how it's going to happen. This darkness is spiritual. All of us are born into this kind of spiritual darkness. It is moral darkness. It is intellectual darkness. And Scripture tells us that those who walk in darkness don't even see what they're tripping over. They trip over it, they bump into it, they knock their heads, they bruise their noses, they fall on the ground. They don't even know what they're tripping over. This is what darkness does in us. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19 puts it like this. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. But you don't belong to the darkness. You've been given something else. Something else has been granted to you, a different way of life. And so here's what Paul says as we continue this passage in verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, but we belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. For you, all of you, you are children of the light, you are children of the day and not of darkness. As people who belong to God and who are followers of Jesus Christ, We have the light of life as our guide and our power of transformation in our lives. This is what we've been granted access to as children of God, what He's brought us into, the light of His life. 
as a guide for how we will live our lives, as the power for transformation so that we can live in ways that honor God and keep our eyes open and bear witness to Jesus Christ until the day that He comes. If you're the kind of person who tracks these kinds of things through Scripture, does a little bit of study, I'd encourage you to grab this concept of light and follow it through the epistles and the way that the different writers speak of it, the way Jesus talks about light. In fact, he says at one point, I am the light. Even the way the Old Testament speaks of light and how we walk in it. One example comes from Peter's epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And again, listen to the context of what Peter has to say in terms of the light that's been given to the disciples of Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We belong to God. That you may sit back and enjoy life without any effort whatsoever and wait until the rapture or death. Did I misquote that? I try to memorize these things, and sometimes they get. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have been called out of the darkness of our own sin by God himself. God calls sinners to repentance. He pulls us out of our darkness brings us into his marvelous light so that now we can be his witnesses everywhere we go. Proclaim the excellencies of all that God has done. You see, guys, it makes a difference that we are children of the light and we're intended to live this way and speak this way. This light It is spiritual, it is moral, it is intellectual, it is light that is given to every part of who we are and how we relate and how we create and work in this world and how we process things. All of this now can be shed in the light of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we understand this. Paul says this over and over. We read it in what Peter just said. Christians do not become children of the light because we're so much better or smarter than everybody else. That's not how we become children of the light, but because God has pulled us out of darkness, because God gives us His light. It is what God gives to whosoever will. Isn't that beautiful? So our understanding And our understanding of life, of Jesus Christ, even of things like the day of the Lord, it's illuminated by God himself. And so now, as his children, we actually have the opportunity to access the knowledge and the wisdom of God himself. We're given the opportunity to access his life, the life that God has prepared for us to live in the power that God has prepared for us to live in as he grants us the gift of his Holy Spirit. So all of this imagery of lightness and darkness, it's about as straightforward as it can possibly be. Either we see it or we don't. We walk through the word of God, he illuminates our hearts and minds, and we learn what this means or we ignore it. We stay in our sin. We think we can handle it and build utopia ourselves or we don't need God. It's light or it's darkness. So instead of being asleep at night 
Or instead of being, he uses the other image, those who are drunk are drunk at night. Completely unable to make good judgments about life is the imagery. Instead of all of that, he uses this word twice. Be sober. Be sober. That's another word to track through the New Testament. Sober and self controlled. It becomes incredibly important to the apostles as they tell Christians, you and me, Phil, this is how you should live as a follower of Jesus Christ in the light. To be sober means to be collected in spirit, right? And again, instead of asleep or drunk, we're collected in spirit. To be self-controlled, to be in charge of all of our faculties, mental, emotional, and physical. Live sober lives. The apostle Peter uses this again in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is now part of the witness of the follower of Jesus Christ in the world that sometimes goes completely topsy-turvy. In a world sometimes that loses its mind, who should walk into the fray in complete control of their faculties? The followers of Jesus Christ. Lead sober lives. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, put on the hope of your salvation. So this is how we ought to live. Instead of what comes naturally to us, when things around us go crazy, when things within us go crazy, what's natural are reactions like fear or anxiety or division or anger or hatred. When we live that way, we become susceptible to the manipulation of darkness. So there really is another way to live. And notice what Paul says again. Here's the way the Christian lives. Here are the values the Christian uses to walk through life. Faith, love, and hope. And he uses the imagery of of being a soldier, of putting on armor. And Paul talks about, Scripture talks about the followers of Jesus Christ as soldiers several times. And that's okay because there's work to be done and we have to strive to see it done and we have to be courageous to see it done. Jesus tells us that Christians are endurers and those who endure to the end will be saved. There is sometimes hard work to be done as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us we fight the good fight. We endure trials, and we fight for the cause of the kingdom of God because there are souls at stake. So it's all right. We put on this breastplate. We put on this helmet. In Ephesians 6, he fills that notion out with what we put on our feet, with what we wrap around our waists, with the kind of sword that we carry. (laughs) So we cover ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ with the right kind of armor for this battle, faith, love, and hope, instead of what is commonly used in our culture as weapons, anger, hate, manipulation, shame, slander, and on and on and on. Those are very typical weapons for the human heart to pick up and use. Guys, I don't think we always understand 
how profoundly different the kingdom of God really is than what is natural and normal to the human heart. And notice this. This is so important. This is a spiritual battle. So our armor and our weapons are spiritual. Our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is not other people. Our enemy is an actual divine being. His name is Satan, and his design is to destroy as many of God's creatures as possible. And we also fight this enemy of sin that tears us apart from the inside out. We have to keep this in mind as we engage with the world. Again, sometimes it is so contentious. And outside of the walls of the church, we scream and yell at each other. And the Christian's reaction to that, we need to learn how to figure out to walk into that world with faith and love and hope. And the recognition that these people aren't our enemies. These people are being destroyed by our own enemy. And they need to know Jesus Christ. We walk into this world with faith, with trust in Jesus Christ, that he really is alive and he really is at work and his kingdom really is great and he really is mighty to save. We walk into this world with faith in Jesus Christ, with love, right? If Scripture tells us that God is love and if God is love, then God's people need to learn how to live that kind of love in front of others in a culture that so often is run by spite and hate. And then hope. This is such a beautiful thing. And in fact, this, I think, is this kind of anchor that makes this kind of life possible for you and me. Our future is secure. The future of the child of God is completely and absolutely secure. We, I love the way that we sing it in that hymn, In Christ Alone. Until He comes, I am safe in His hands. The day of the Lord is not darkness to the child of God. It is hope, and it is light. It is encouragement, and it is joy, and it is our reason to witness in this world. We read part of this devotional from Charles Spurgeon on Tuesday night, and I want to read a piece of it here this morning as we think about this notion of the day of the Lord affecting our lives here and now. He says this, Our hope in Christ for our future In heaven is the foundation and driving force behind our joy here. Yet may it never be said of us that we continually dream of the future while forgetting the present. Instead, may the future sanctify the present for the highest possible purposes. Through the Spirit of God, the hope of heaven is the most powerful force for producing godly character the foundation or source of joyful service in the cornerstone of a phrase we almost never use, cheerful holiness, right? Not grumpy holiness, cheerful holiness. Not judgmental holiness, but it sanctifies my life today and I can live, I love this, in joyful service and cheerful holiness. Our hope for the future sanctifies our lives today. So the day of the Lord, it really does make a difference in how Christians live here and now. Paul tells the Thessalonians, because that's coming, because the world is going to look like this, here's how the Christian walks into the world, as children of light and not as children of darkness. 
So we live to grow closer to Christ, to give glory to God, to bear witness to His name in a world that desperately needs to know Him. We live, as Christ tells us now, as salt and light, bringing the kingdom of God into our spheres of influences. This is how the Christian engages in our communities, our politics, our businesses, as children of light, full of faith, love, and hope. So we bring, you and I, as we walk out of this place, no pressure, but we bring, (laughs) by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God into this world. We bring light into darkness. Now, I've had to do some internal adjusting myself over the last couple of weeks. I've told you guys this before, but I'm a bit of a political animal, so I've probably paid way too much attention to some things that have gone on these last couple of weeks, and it's so easy for me to get wrapped up in, quite frankly, the darkness. And I have to recenter myself. I have to recalibrate myself. And I have to think, how does a disciple of Jesus Christ deal with this? Speak of this. Talk to others about it. Post on social media or not to post on social media. That really is a good question. Here are some practical thoughts. How do we bring the kingdom of God of light into darkness? Just a handful of thoughts. First, pray. Please pray. Please be people of prayer. (laughs) Pray for our country. And I know sometimes that's a a big thing and it's an abstract thing. So pray for your neighbor as well. Maybe you know a few of your neighbor's names. Pray for them, right? Make it real. Make it practical. Be people of prayer. Secondly, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, Phil. (laughs) Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. That's right out of Scripture, guys. This is light in darkness. Care about both justice and truth. For some reason, when one of those two things is pursued in our world, the other is dropped. The Christian cannot drop either bringing healing and compassion to those who are in need and refusing to let go of the truth itself. Care about both as children of God. Understand that God is sovereign, right? The day of the Lord is coming. Here is what that means. So encourage one another with these words. Understand that God is sovereign. And then finally, in case you missed it, pray some more. Let's just not neglect this powerful tool that we have been given. The prayer of the righteous person avails much, Scripture says. It's not something throwaway that we teach our kids to do, and then when we become adults, we stop doing it. It's something we need to do more and more and more and more. Keep praying. Well, this last question that was probably rolling through the Thessalonians' minds, and it's a natural question when we wrestle with, there's going to come a day where every human being stands before the judge of all things, Jesus Christ himself. What about me? How will I stand? Notice what Paul says in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. That's a word, that's a term that's used in Scripture to speak of the wrath that God pours out upon sin. It's part of the reason why I believe that Christians will not be subject to that wrath as it's described in Scripture. 
For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And guys, this is good news, he says, right? If this day is coming, how do I make sure I will receive salvation instead of wrath? Will I stand? Paul says, here's how it happens. We obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're alive when the day comes or my body is rotting in the grave when the day comes, we will be with Him. Friends, it's right standing with Jesus Christ. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. It won't be because of what I have accomplished, who I know, how I have voted, what family I belong to, how pure my past is. It is only because of Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is really good news. Salvation made available to all. The light and life of God made available to whosoever will. Friends, be reconciled to God. And your life can be brand new in the light of Jesus Christ. And your eternity can be secured in Him. Let's pray.